Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Phil Nickel, and we spoke about uh, emotion and male anger and uh, all sorts of interesting things. We come from very different perspectives when it comes to uh, dealing with or expressing or feeling emotions, so I think we had a really interesting chat. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Thank you, everybody who's been emailing me. AliceRFraser at gmail.com is the place to do that. I really enjoy reading your emails. And uh, thank you to everybody who's been subscribing to the Patreon, people who've been coming up to me after gigs. Ah, what a delight. It's really a beautiful thing. Um, Somebody came up to me after a gig and gave me £20, which felt uh, illicit and surreptitious, and I enjoyed that very much. You don't have to do that. You can just come up and say hi uh, or send me an email or, you know, support the podcast in other ways, but it uh, meant a lot in that moment. Um, Oh, yes, listen to the trilogy if you have not yet. Recommend things to your friends. Uh, It's coming up to Christmas, so if you are in a hiring position at a company and want me to do some sort of Christmas party for you, I am open to that. This is a time of year where it can either be uh, a lot of work or zero work, so uh, that's that's an option if you want me to come and do things for your company. Um, What else? I think that's it. Uh, I will talk to you again next week. Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, everybody again who has been uh, sending me messages about uh, the podcast I put up last week which was uh, my mum uh, and on the event on the anniversary of her death uh, that is a podcast that I find it difficult to listen to and knowing that some of you have listened to it uh, for the first time and some of you have listened to it again uh, does mean a lot to me. I will stop blathering Thank you again. I will see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Yeah. Hello. Who are you and what have you been drinking? (laughs) Hi. uh, My name is Phil Nickel and I've been drinking some uh, mint tea, fresh mint tea. That's a good move. Yeah. Yeah, it was very nice. I find it's good for my digestion. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, su- I suffer a little bit of uh, not a little bit. I suffer acid acid, acid reflux. Uh, it runs in the family. It's hereditary. Um, my father. He didn't tell me this till very late in his life. Now, uh, because my I don't, wasn't that close to my dad. Um, uh, grow in my adult life. I mean, I was you know close to him, but we didn't really talk about stuff like his. And he told me very late in my life when I was complaining about getting acid reflux. He went, "Oh well, I get that." And I take this one little pill for it, and I forget the name of it. I refuse to take medicine for a thing like that. And he said his father um, had a heart attack, and because it was caused. Yeah, due to an ulcer caused from acid reflux. It, it can become an ulcer. This is back in the days when they wouldn't have known that's what it was. So you just and also he was a, would have been a Scotsman, uh, you know, uh, working class Scotsman who would not have complained about pain. So he would have just sucked it up. Sucked it up. I mean, this is... Okay, that brings up two things for me. One is that there's a member of my family who is currently pregnant. Right. And the number of things that have happened throughout her pregnancy where she's said, oh, I feel this, and somebody else, her sister, or somebody else who's had this experience is like, oh, yeah, that happens to everyone. But this idea that we don't kind of tell people in advance of what mm. they're, what's in store for them... Yeah. Uh, but also the complaining about pain thing. There's a, I mean, this is one of the nasty things about women's medicine is that women tend to underrate their pain 
when they're reporting it to a doctor, but doctors also tend to overrate women's self-report of pain. Oh, right, for that reason. Well, no, because they think women will exaggerate their pain. Most women under-exaggerate under their pain. Oh, right. So say out of ten, you're feeling seven pain, and right. you'll say, I feel six, and the doctor will think wow. she means four. Yeah, so I thought it was with the, the limited reading I've done about it. I thought that women's the pain threshold for women is much higher than men, not just because of the birth process, but because in general, women, their uh, nervous systems are um, built to take more, to accept more pain. I don't know where I've read that. Yeah, women I do, thought, women do a, have a higher a common, tolerance for pain yeah, as well. Yeah, I thought it was common knowledge. But yeah, this is, so there's this kind of combined thing, and all of those things end up with women tending to get worse treatment. Why do you think that is? I mean, obviously... Because they'll it's feel more pain before they go to the doctor mm. because they've got a high pain threshold. They'll under-report because they don't want to make a fuss and then the doctor will underestimate because yeah, yeah, he's right. assuming she's exaggerating. Yeah, right. But if it's not... But if we know that... If we know this about... In, I mean, it's a generalisation, obviously, the breadth, of, the breadth of humanity, but if, if, if women, as a, as, a, as a feminine of the species, has built this ability to tolerate more pain uh wouldn't that be uh, wouldn't shouldn't that be common knowledge and be obvious i, I mean, mean and also just think i just as a digression but also why would it be because they have as as slightly smaller um, f physical structure to 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 men that take more take more of uh physical abuse take more like again i mean in in everyday things like lifting carrying you know like is it would that be would that be the reason i absolutely don't know right. i don't know if it's a side effect or a corollary to childbirth or yeah, what be. it is but it must be um yeah or so maybe it's maybe it's hormonal i mean maybe it is I mean, just a maybe it's just chemically that you're able to i know i broke my arm once when i was uh, a teenager it broke it in three places. It got stepped on during a, f a softball game. <laughs> I, I was diving with my glove hand out, and I put another arm on the ground to catch me, and there was another player running in from behind me who just happened to step on the arm. Of all the places he could have stepped around me, stepped on my arm, so it snapped up across both bones in the... I don't know what that, those two bones were called, and then, and then my, and my wrist, so it was bent at an angle. Oh. And I remember the pain being really horrible. And a guy, a doctor came over. I didn't know he was a doctor at the time. And just grabbed me by my neck, put his nails into the back of my neck and, start, and started, s s and I started screaming with pain. And everyone was going, what are you doing? He said, I'm, uh, I'm taking, there's a, a pain, pain is like a, if, it, if you're running it through a tube, there's, there's a maximum amount of pain that can come through your nervous system. So he was taking pain away from the arm and putting it, taking some of it into my neck, which is more direct. So he was actually distracting me from the pain in my arm by until they could get some, till he could get, till they get some help. And I actually at the time thought that's mental. <laughs> and <laughs> I still either I, way you're in pain. I still don't really know. Well, yeah, I still, I still don't know if that's true. No, he, I think the idea is if you see someone in trauma, is that if you, if the, if the pain's coming from one area, it can cause them to pass out. And if the pain, if you if you split the pain, so if someone, if you see someone's hurt their foot or something, um, pinch behind their pinch a, a, a pressure point. So he was pinching me behind my my neck, behind the, or pinch them between their thumb and their between your thumb and your your forefinger. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it seems to work. I mean, if I've got a if you've got a headache, bite down really hard between your thumb and your and your pointer finger, and it alleviates some of the headache. 
I mean, I'll try it. I'll try anything you know? once. I mean, it's a lie. I won't. There's many things I won't <laughs> try even once. Well, if it does work, I don't know. I, I, if it seems to me like if that was true, they'd be do using it in all therapies. But I mean, you do get that when you're getting injections or whatever. They'll scratch some point that isn't being injected. Certainly distraction often works. I guess it's the idea of stimulus of another part of your nervous system. Yeah, and hypnosis and various other things, yeah. placebo effect stuff where they'll say that they've got really strong painkillers but they're not injecting you with anything. Yeah, that's right. I wonder I if that works emotionally as well. <laughs> like I wonder if you can distract yourself emotionally but if you're really angry about something, actually oh. you distract yourself by thinking about something really sad and then you can't be both angry and sad. There's only like a oh, there's a fine there's a finite there's a finite amount of emotional pain you can accept I before you pass out. Yeah. <laughs> I know I've been there. I mean there, there I are. have been there. I talk about it in my show that I'm doing now about being being like having murderous thoughts and uh, um, how <clears throat> it's not until you're not until you're faced with them that you realize I'm in a I'm in a situation now where I can understand why those types of things happen. Fortunately, it didn't happen. I'm not it's not my makeup, but I did actually. I think it's called the red mist descended. And wow. I think had there been had there been a, a, a gun or something, I talk about how I was I could have actually I I'd lost all sense of of right and wrong in that moment. What was the moment? If you can well, tell us. Well, it was us. it was in the moment of uh, when I found out that uh, my one of my best friends. Actually, two of my best friends um, had had relations with my my wife, and when she left, and and the guy was living in my house in the back room. I, he'd come back from traveling with very little money, so I get I, I gave him I let him stay in my the back room of my house. Um, I lent him some money, and I and he actually borrowed some of my shirt, but some of my shirts. And one of my I used to wear like I I always used to wear sort of recycled clothing. And I, my father had all these groovy shirts from the fifties and sixties with stripes on them and big collars, and I used to wear them because I was a groover in Toronto. And he came in. I'd been downstairs. My wife had left the building, um, cause, and I was um, un inconsolable, living and crying. I was in the basement. Um, beating the shit out of the futon, pretending it was him while my dog Lucifer looked on. And then he came in and I came upstairs and he came around the corner into the kitchen and he was wearing my dad's shirt as well on top of it. Um, and I, and he, went, he went, hey, what's going on? And I got about you know four inches from his nose and went, you know what the fuck's going on? And you could see it, the, the balls drop in, in his face as he kind of went. And then he started to get defensive and angry went well you don't know and i was like i was like i don't even start and i can't even want to relive the conversation yeah. but i remember in that moment thinking i could kill you i i i it would be then if it can if he if he he's gonna have to say just one thing and it's gonna push me over the edge um and then of course it didn't happen and that's all in a dream and all it's time slows down and i it all felt like it was in slow motion and, but I remember I had a big kitchen, with this beautiful big kitchen table, and it was I, lo I loved the house we lived in, and I just remember in a split second imagining like holding him down by his neck on it, and then <laughs> is, could this get me in trouble? I'm no. <laughs> anyway, no it didn't happen. It didn't, happen. it didn't happen. It, did, it didn't happen. And, and I actually uh, the reason I talk about it is because I think sometimes we deny these thoughts to ourselves, um, that we all, every single one of us, we're only human, and we're only we're we're, we're 
creatures and animals that in the end of the day, if you deny that you're having these instinctual, these, these lusts or, or you know, d red moments or dark moments, even uh, de depressive moments or enlightened moments, they, they all come out of a bestial, out of a, a very natural place. And so I think when people go, I, when people look at me funny when I say those, when I tell them that story, I think, well, then you either are lucky enough that you haven't had that situation, or you haven't, you're not being honest with yourself. Yeah, I like, think like the fear you have when you when you know that someone you care about is facing their mortality, and the that fear you have for them and that love you have for them is really hard. It's 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 um it's hard to even describe what it is. Those moments are the moments that make you into the human being. Yeah, I remember I had a piano teacher when I was a kid, and I loved her very much. She was a lovely, lovely, lovely woman, and I <laughs> should apologize for never having practiced. Uh, but she would say, I've never felt anger. She was sort of a very, you know, hippie... Sure. You know, Buddhist. Well, <laughs> this is no. the thing. I was brought up Buddhist, so <laughs> I, I don't think... The, I always think of Buddhism as, as more realism, engaging what's really there, rather than what I saw her thing as, as being kind of a delusion, a self-delusion, or right. an embracing of, right. of a self-image that helped her get through life, uh -huh. that she never felt anger. But I just couldn't, I could not believe yeah. that. I, I saw that as, and I don't, I'm s saying this as someone, I rarely get angry. Yeah. There's a, a genuinely a handful of times, and I usually write a show about them in my whole life, in my sure. adult life particularly, that sure. I felt rage. Yeah. And even so, like part of that not getting rageful is noticing when you're starting to be angry mm. and approaching it and dealing mm. with it and engaging with it rather yeah. than denying it. Because yeah. then I think it goes... I, well, I th I, I'm 100% behind the idea of indulging your emotions. In, and, and obviously, it's a mental health, it gets to a mental health issue. But I, this is my, I, I've thought about this consciously because I, I st went and studied acting. And even before that, like from age 12 on, I realized I was a very hyper-emotional person. Uh, because of my uh, being moved around a lot, because I being raised in a strict Christian family where things were very strict, and b because I had a, 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 a clinical stutter and a lisp, and I was small, so I was I was bullied and picked on and moved from school to school. I had a lot of anger issues by the time I became hormonal as a teenager, and I remember being very conscious of it. And then when I got to be about 14 and 15, because of that uh, religious upbringing, I started looking at other, uh, into other religions, and um, and in one of the, the four pillars, or it's four or five pillars of Buddhism is the secession of emotion. And I remember reading that thinking, well, that, I can't, that's enough for me not to be able to indulge myself in that particular belief system because I wear my emotions really close to my sleeve or on my sleeve or close to the top of my skin. And the reason was because I want to be able to recall them as an actor. It was practical for me to be able to remember that moment that that thing happened with my friend so that if I'm ever in a situation where I have to recall that moment for the, for the benefit of an audience or I ever have to act that angry or crazy then I have kept it really close to me and I think that has that's informed my 
my, my personality. So I actually am, people always think I'm really emotional or moody or whatever you want to call me. Um, but I indulge my emotions because I want to live them fully. And I think em em emotions are the m most beautiful thing. And people talk about being happy or being sad. Or you're never always happy or always sad. So you're a mixture of all sorts of things. Or I am, certainly. I can only speak personally. A mixture of all these things at the same time. So as I sit here now, I'm very content. Uh, I've got everything that I need. I'm having a nice chat. But within a moment, if you said the right things or we talked about something, I could certainly let myself become emotional about it. Um, but I'm, I mean, I talked quite quite coldly about that red mist, but at the same time, as I was describing it to you, I remember the feeling. See, it, it was a horrible feeling. The, wor the worst bit of that story was even, is the, the bit afterwards when the guilt sets in as you start to realize, oh my God, I'm, that's, I'm horrible. I'm a horrible person. He left. I, I, I said to him, I'll go downstairs and I'll I'll give you five minutes to get all your stuff out of your room, and I never want to see you again. You know, it was a pretty full-on conversation. I went downstairs, bawling my eyes out. When I came back up, he had cleared everything out there. He didn't have that much. And he had taken the shirt off and put it on a hanger. So the only thing that was left in the room was my father's shirt on a hanger in this empty room. And it was just so like, and I just remember sitting on the end of the bed with the dog, but with its, dogs are very empathetic. The dog with its head between my legs, just like, you know, flashing its, eyelashes at me as I'm crying, rubbing its, you know, petting it while bawling, think, and a lost, completely lost, like uh, thoughts flying every which way out of control. And there's a bit of me that thinks, well, I can recall on that, that action and that time at any time, because instead of burying it and instead of going, <gasps> I can't think this, I don't want to think this way, I can't be that way. I had trained myself to indulge myself in those thoughts and therefore I could recall it if I had to. I mean, hopefully. Yeah, that's a, that's a. I hope that doesn't, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way. No, 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 no. It's just, a, just a, it's, an act, it's an acting. For me, that's trait. a really interesting, an interesting idea because I think of my upbringing, which was not. I think there is there's a middle ground between indulging your emotions and denying your emotions, but Buddhism is certainly about engaging them at an early point. So not saying that you're not angry, but noticing that you're angry and sorting it out before it becomes something intense. And I know mostly in my life that served me well. Yeah. I've, you know, there's been things in my life that have been, you know. What, what would you say, emotional weather events that mm. I've managed to get through without, you know, collapsing. But equally, there were, there have been times in my life where I have wanted to indulge my emotions and wanted to have less control over them. I can't say succumbing to that urge has ever served me particularly well, but sometimes it has. Well, it, do, it does in the positive emotion. Like people, the positive emotions, that's the reason people ride roller coasters, so they can let that fear breathe in a place, but it's actually a safe, you know, if, if, you're, if you're really realistic, you get on a roller coaster, you just sit there. Yeah. You know, hey, well, my stomach just went into my heart. Hey. But if you're, you, you're going to ride a roller coaster, you may as well get into it and let yourself be as shit scared, thinking, ah! That's the, most, that's, that's the fun of it. And usually the idea is you take a, someone younger or you know you go on with the you know young teenagers who actually genuinely is scared 
and scare them. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the fun of it, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, that's the, where fiction comes in. And I guess that you as an actor kind of serve fiction, more or less, or you serve truth through fiction, where there, that is a safe place for people to project their catharsis on you and let you have it. Sure. Blue Velvet, you know, in the, in the movie Blue Velvet, when he's terrifying and he, He's got the mask over his face, and you just and you think it's it's so realistic. It's he's he's not just acting; he's fucking in. He's so that it's it's completely believable uh, to the point where it's terrifying, which is what they want, which is what the point of that moment is. You, she's terrified, and you're supposed to feel her terror, and you do, and mm. that's and that's cathartic. You know, that's <coughs> all drama and and comedy to a certain extent does the same thing in that. It releases the other way is is you know without getting too cliche about it, but la laughter is a, is a, the immediate response to the fear of not knowing how to respond to to what you've just heard, and, yeah. and at its best, it's a big belly laugh that makes you feel a lot better that everyone else f finds it funny as well. Yeah, the rel the relief. Of of being in a room full of people laughing, this is not nothing much like it. But it's not far off being in in a in a cinema with people who are terrified, and the group the group activity of being terrified, or or pouring pouring with tears, you know. And I was because I, I don't know who's who's listening to your podcast, but I was in a musical this year called Everybody's Talking About Jamie. The one group activity, not as well as enjoying the songs and the music, is that it was. It would. There's one part in the show when the mum, the boy runs off and the mum sings her song, and I've never really seen it uh, because I was I'm in the play, uh, and then I went to see. I've left the play and then I went to see it and I thought, well, I know it, I know it, and I, wa I was backstage while she did it every night. And for the first month, I'd sit backstage and you know, you know it's emotional and you, you the atmosphere in the room is amazing. But then I would go, I would go and I, when I went to see it. I couldn't help myself. I couldn't stop myself from. I gave in, and I enjoy giving in. So I do cry at movies, and oh, I yeah. do, and I do laugh loud when something's funny. And I, I, but at the same time, the negative emotions, I also let them in. So, um, I, I talk about crying a lot because I'm. I don't. I don't actually don't cry as much as I used to, but I used to cry daily. Um, I have always done. I think it's really healthy. Uh, I think if you're holding back, I think sometimes the best thing you can do is have a good cry or a vomit or a laugh. <laughs> Does that sound crazy? No. So I think it if sometimes you need to have a good cry, if something's bugging you that much, if someone's pissed you off or done you wrong, or something, the best thing you do is go into a cubicle in, a, in the club you're in and just get it out. Mm -hmm. Take as long as you need. No one's judging you on it. Yeah. If your I friends mean, are really good friends, they will, if anything, they'll... They'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll let you have it, and not, and not, and not prod you. But what's going on? You don't be an idiot. Just let it, just let it happen. Let mm. it out. Get it out. I think we, there was a, there was a study. I, 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 I cried so much that I, kind of started looking into it, and researching it, and looking online, and thinking that maybe there's something wrong with me. And, and I, there's been quite a lot of studies done of older men crying, and that. Uh, in the studies, in these are you know from magazines, Scientific American, whatever, that m m as men age, they cry more, and as women age, they cry less. And I wonder if that part and parcel of the, the pain threshold thing we're talking about. And and there there's a there's studying now that maybe through the tear ducts we, we release a lot. There's a lot of toxin that comes out through your tears, 
and they're wondering if, you know, and it's a, cli- a, a bit of a cliche to see, you know, you see two old guys at a bar and they're, you know, they just, they tear up. Or two old guys tearing up about something and it's not something you recognize and men don't, aren't supposed to cry. Boys aren't supposed to, boys don't cry, right? It's a cliche. Um, but boys certainly do cry. They just maybe don't cry in public. Uh, or they don't cry around their friends, and maybe it's it, not right, but it's more acceptable for for girls to cry around their groups, for girls to cry around other girls. Yeah, um, well, it is one of those things that everybody everybody does cry, and and how acceptable it is to cry can change between person to person or interaction to interaction in yeah. the same way as you're a different person with every person you're with. Yeah. Slightly different facets of the same person. Yeah. Um, you, I think, yeah, I, th- I mean, I've been, I've had moments riding the tube packed face, facing away from, like packed, the face up against the window, uh, absolutely heaving with tears, trying to, trying not to be someone that pri- cries in public space because I don't want other people going, oh my God, it, it not, wasn't the point of it, just uncontrollably. Uh, there, uh, there's something very cathartic about it. And then pulling up to a station and having someone come on who, uh, who's like, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And having that experience. Uh, and because of that, then recognizing when it happens around me. So I've actually had long conversations with people who have, who are, who are p- strangers who are deeply distressed about something. And because I've had that experience, we're able to recognize that they're dealing with something. And it's not a huge, like, oh, my God, you need my help. Let's talk. It's just more of, are you always everything all right? And that way of approaching it means that they're able to go, yeah, I'm just, you know. I remember a woman on, this is um, a woman getting on a flight late in uh, coming back from Amsterdam she was furious. She was crying in the queue behind me. I thought I recognized her actually, but it turns out I didn't. And she was going up the stairs, and she and and I was like, "Are you okay? I saw you crying in the queue. Are you okay?" And she went, "Well, I'm not because I was my my I got a message this morning. My mother is Dutch, and she was she was an, an, on her deathbed. And I went to get on a plane at Stansted, and that group um, uh, oh, I forget what they're called now. The ones that wanted to stop took take the runway down." Flight, stupid, stupid flights or something stupid. Uh, they they closed off a runway and because of, uh, because of it, flights were all delayed and I missed the flight. And I'm I wasn't at my mother's side when she passed away. And I was like, oh my god, I'm sure those people that c- did that action to stop that runway being built did not think of people like you when they did that action. And it, and 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 I and I actually changed the way a whole thing I thought about it because when I, I also had realized I might get late I might be late getting back and I was like well, you know good on those people for doing that, you know I mean we don't need more runways or we do and but you know you can be all self righteous about it but actually this impacts this woman on a very simple level and she went and sat beside me across the uh, the aisle, and then as we took off she reached over and held my hand, and then. I'd, and just as a as a friendly gesture, mm. and I was and I just like squeezed her hand, and I just thought, well, that this woman's flying back now, really f- pissed off and fucked off, and holding back tears, and I was like, and I just like when flight, once the flight took off, I said to her, you know, it's it's okay if you want to, just you want to keep crying, and she just cried and she cried for you know, twenty minutes into this flight, and I could totally understand why. She was like upset. Why she's upset? And, and I don't know if that's unusual or, un, or normal. If I don't know if my behavior is normal. I wish more people would do that, to be honest, because um, then we might have a, just a more sensitive and, and um, 
yeah. a more empathetic world around us because it must happen all the time. People are in trouble around us all the time, especially in, in a city. And you put on your London face, your game face, and you, you don't want anyone to interact with you. And sometimes you're holding in a huge amount of emotion. Yeah, I mean, I remember walking out of the National Gallery not long after my mum had died. Um, and I stepped on somebody's chalk drawing on the ground. I wasn't looking where I was going. And a lady who had nothing to do with it got really up in my face about it. And she's like, didn't you see? You know, you're careless. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And she just kept at me. Yeah. Like, you know, this is this man's living. And I <laughs> was on the verge of tears. And I, I just said, you know, hey, I, I was not paying attention. My mum just died. Mm. And then I walked away. But it was this moment of I could have just walked away yeah. and left her with her self-righteous rage. Sure. But it, I thought it was important just because you kind of do have to go around in the world knowing that other people have stuff going on. Yeah, of course. But it isn't all about, you know, and of course I had done the wrong thing. I'd stepped on this guy's chalk drawing. Not I hadn't particularly. Seen it, but I mean, it's chalk. It's, it's yeah, not, it nothing lasts forever anyway. Now, in fact, your, his chalk drawing is a perfect analogy for what you've been going through. Is it some think these things are there and beautiful and then disappear and that's nothing sums it up even better. If if you're looking for I kinda look I'm constantly looking for her metaphors and, and drawing you know, putting ideas together. And I that woman's anger about something really at the mo in a moment significant, but actually in the long run, completely, completely insignificant in life. A chalk drawing on the ground, livelihood or not. Has, in fact, he would have understood more than anyone how quickly it can all be taken away. So, yeah. I don't know. What have you been wrestling with recently? <laughs> Me? Mm -hmm. I have. I've been having a, I know, I've been having an okay time recently. Um, nothing, nothing in particular. Um, how about what? Here's one that I've been thinking about um, that I'd like your take on. That we are, what, what have you, what do you believe to be true? Like strongly believe, have a strong visceral belief in something, but that you acknowledge could not be true. Oh, man, well, that's, that's everything, isn't it? <laughs> the whole thrust of my, of my show that I'm touring is about Uncertain, cert uncertainty and certainty. And <coughs> even as I do the show and I'm learning from, because I think you sometimes write a show and don't realize what you've got in it sometimes. That I, uh, and also l constantly tweaking it going, I don't actually, not, I'm not saying that correctly, that's not what I mean and I don't want to say that. Um, that uh, it's, we, if, if we were to, uh, we formulate uh, scaffolding of truth in our minds in order to protect ourselves from the glaring reality that not everything is completely unknowable and uncertain. Um, sure, the tea will come out of your cup into your mouth. That's 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 a certain. But it, we also know that it could change. I could knock the cup out of your mouth. The tea might be no tea in the cup. I mean, there's. there's I was no underslept on my way back from Dublin the other day, and I just poured tea down my front. Completely yeah. missed my mouth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that, and the, and so that 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 action can t send you on two route, two paths. Like, oh, I'm an idiot, 
oh, what the world hates me. Oh, why would the universe <laughs> do this to me? Or isn't it amazing that life can be that f disastrous and silly? Because uh, that's not really that big a disaster unless you think, and you know, unless you s that's the most important top you've ever had. Or I was impressed by how smoothly I did it, <laughs> like I was doing yeah. it on purpose, and it was like a good three seconds before I realized, realized what I was doing. Yeah. So yeah. from the outside world, anyone watching me would have thought I'd done it on purpose. Yes, and I love when I love when someone else does see it. That's when it becomes comedy. When someone else does see you do it and you share that moment of like, I'm an idiot. <laughs> we've all done it. We've all done it. Mm. We've, we've absolutely all done it. But so, so what am I struggling with? So the tr about truth, um, it, I mean, it, truth is, you know, I, as I say in the show, it's perspective. You're, we're sitting here. If, if I have this, I, I don't, I have this dumb idea that an image of, okay, if you imagine what I'm sensing, I, I close my eyes and what I'm sensing, I've got my eyes closed now, and I can f I can feel my hand, but I can imagine what it looks like in front of me, and I can imagine what you look like, and I can see the couch. It's all still there. I'm quite certain of that, right? Um, but then you've also cl you've got the same thing going on, <laughs> the exact same thing. And imagine if you could, if we, it was ever possible for human beings to indulge both those feelings at the same time, right? That would mm. be then what an amazing feeling that would be to to appreciate this room in through both my identity and your identity and then extrapolate extra, extrapolate upon that so that you imagine there's like 30 people walking down the road in Crouch End right now. Imagine being able to close your eyes and, and experience all of it at the same time, what that, what that sensation might be. That's the closest we would get to any kind of truth. Yeah. Because you'd have to, there's a guy driving a bus and he's got all of his own truth going on. And his truth is a truth, you know? And there's a woman walking with a Zimmer frame and there's some kids in the subway making fun of the guy's new hat. And they're all, if you could imagine it all at the same time, that'd be the closest, and even then there would still be uncertainty. Yeah, and I mean, this is, so this is an interesting thing as well in that, like I've said this before, uh, probably on this podcast, but there are so many things that are true at the same time. And language is, actually a very imprecise tool for describing reality. Yeah. That, you know, I can say, for example, that, you know, you have a mirror there and it is a surrounded by beautiful fairy lights. Mm -hmm. And that's true at the same time as what is outside the window is true, what is I'm hearing is true, yeah. what I'm smelling is true, what sure. I'm tasting is true, you know, that there are no fairy... Like, there are... Any truth is so small. Yeah. And it can, so it can change in a second, though. So, for instance, using the fairy lights as an example, is those, that beautiful mirror and fairy lights right now is beautiful, and we look at it, and it's great. Um, if, some, if, I'm faced, if I'm faced with some kind of tragedy in my life, er, or I'm, you know, something horrible were to happen in my life, and I were to come into this room and had those lights around that mirror, and I'm f sitting looking at myself in that mirror, those lights that might actually become the most horrendous, that mirror might be the most horrendous thing in the world. So mm. the truth of it being a really beautiful mirror with lights around it can also, it can also, in another light, be the most horrendous thing in the world, and that's equally as true. Yeah. And <coughs> we're talking about language, though, is we, there's a Canadian linguist called Northrop Fry, who oh, yeah. was one of the guys who developed the idea that language is um, improvised, I'm these thoughts are improvised. So where, where I'm having this 
sentence that's coming out my mouth now I've not thought of before or am I thinking of it just before I say it or am I saying is it coming out as I say it and then my whole or is the speaking of it shaping your thoughts shaping my thoughts and also you're also catching the thought as it's coming out not a second behind you like right on the same beat in fact there's sometimes I'll say something you might pick up something on it there's more to the thought you might go well that's not true or you pick up other things on it so that kind of communication on that level is sort of outside thought lives outside the human mind Northrop Fry had this idea that thought was that we're only we're like uh, antennas for the thoughts and the thoughts are floating and there's the his theory was that sometimes people come up with the same ideas at the same time and he used um he used uh, um, electricity and the telephone as an example <laughs> of, of men developing the same ideas at the same time in different places. And that once a thought is actually spoke out and s said out loud, that it, it's out. So therefore, having these thoughts means that someone somewhere else might also be at the same time bringing and being an antenna for the thoughts. So I mean, that's. I mean, it's 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 linguistics. That's a wild idea, and well, fun. it's nineteen seventies linguistics. But I, Laura Davis, my friend Laura, who mm. you might know, she mm. has an idea of like that about jokes, which right. is that sometimes you'll see somebody else tell a joke. Yeah. And when you see that joke and you think that should have been mine, that was a joke you missed. That was one right. of those ones that you woke up with in the middle of the night and didn't write I down. I didn't do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I think is. I think that's fun. And then sometimes you'll catch a joke that isn't yours. Yeah. And then, you know, if you're a if you're a noble soul, you'll find the person <laughs> give them the joke. Give them the joke. Oh no, that's that's a that's definitely a Phil Nickel joke. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean Kerry Marks and I lived together for ten years and we used to joke constantly. He's just a non stop joke machine. Mm, he's a great man. And, and non stop joke machine. That should be his show next year. <laughs> but uh <laughs> but uh, it's uh yeah, if if a joke fits someone else then you sh they sh they should definitely have it yeah i like yeah. that i like that idea i don't know that i believe but it though certainly in terms but I, of I think i think if you uh, if you use that theory then uh, of north fries and it, it's it's deep so you'd have to if you want to read into it if you're listening to the podcast go go and, and wikipedia and google it and you'll see it's so deep it's, he, he, it's like before the cloud mm. now we have iCloud but way before that in the 70s he was thinking about thoughts as being in a sea of a sea he used an image of a sea of thoughts above us and it would rain thoughts and thoughts were traveling through we are traveling through thoughts like radio waves not actual radio waves but like through and that we just to encompass them and we're open to certain thoughts and not to other ones and people are who are holy men and people who are revered for their high thinking are just have trained themselves to be a much more uh, have a wider frequency of thoughts and I just think it's interesting, and I think comedians. So the way it affects comedians is that comedians open themselves up to those comic thoughts. Mm. They open themselves up to comic thinking, and when you see someone like even on like the something as inane as roast battle or something like that, when someone can there's there's you can write a roast line which mm. looks like it's written, but then when a friend nails you with something like spontaneously out of their mouth that they haven't thought about before and it's perfect and perfectly phrased and eloquent there's nothing beats that when you especially when you both get it mm. and it's on a level of it's on a level of where you go in, and when you make jokes between personal really personal friends that no one else might understand all the background to that joke and it comes out fluently 
that to me seems like the same idea, that you're both connected to the same thought. Therefore, you don't need to know, you don't yeah. need to know the thought, you get it. Yeah, you well, just the, get the it. underlying communication also is I know you, which is one of the yeah. reassuring things about a very personal insult. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> well, of course. Well, not even means insults, but I don't even not yeah. insult, but just, sure. a, just like a, you know, just a, a, a two words to you when you're looking at something that you're both finding funny, mm. you, you don't know that until the person goes, burr, 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 and then you go, ah! <laughs> no, no. you're both thinking the same thing at the same time. Yeah. Sometimes when I was in Corking the Juice Pigs, we constantly said the same thing at the same time because we were so finely tuned to how each other thought that we'd sometimes try and guess without thinking. We would be able to guess what the other person was going to come up with, even though most of them were like wild flights of fancy you know, surreal, yeah. Sean's surreal flights of fancy. We all kind of knew where it was going to the point where Greg and I, to be honest, sometimes he'd be doing some amazing flight of fancy improv and we were like, <gasps> boring. <laughs> <laughs> the audience is going mad and we're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> but at the same time, only he's, he's one of the few people I've ever been, be seen that was able to do that. Well, I see, I've always thought of, I don't know, uh, like ideas or like words are the way that you cage ideas, but not even cage them, and they're almost like a butterfly net. You only scrape a certain amount of the meaning that you're going for, at yeah. best, that you can communicate. You're, you're scooping through a fish pond, and you can keep just the smallest amount of what you're yeah. trying to capture in the words. Yeah. But that you create the idea in the same way as, as building walls creates a space. The space was already sort of there. Yeah. But without definition, it's never never it can never be that space unless mm. you draw the lines around it it doesn't exist yeah even though it does exist well you can does uh, that make any sense it, it, at all? it makes total sense and I, I've, I've been th I saw a thing recently that might clarify it if you um, and you can see this on anywhere on the internet is just watch the a um, <coughs> an ultrasound of the human of the throat and the tongue Speak them saying sentences, and you realize just how it's just m a muscular reaction. Um, and this is something we we looked at it it when we were in acting schools. You know how the vocal cords work, and how the tongue works, and how where are the words. So when you're studying accents, there's different pla placements of the tongue that cause the different sounds. Mm. So you can make all these different sounds. But then the intention of a th of a of a word is actually an emotional intention. It comes from a physicality and your body, and you create that physicality. And I and I know this is true because if I do a line in my show that's supposed to resonate emotionally with an audience. Sometimes I don't even realize that till I've uh, for uh, through three or four, you know, run run-ins in the previews, and I'm like, I'm not giving that enough weight, or not letting the pause afterwards sit. I'm not letting the, those words mean enough because I'm I'm not physically expressing it properly. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be animated, either, because you know the best actors in the world, you know, the f like film actors don't do very much at all, but they're just. Um, embodying, embodying it. it, yeah, they're they're present in the thought. I think is is what the actors talk about it. Present in the thought. So for jokes, the the you can you can if this is a, a podcast to help people do comedy better, <laughs> it's to it's to it's not. It's a podcast to help people argue better. Argue better. Well, it's the same thing. But if it's if you well, if you better. if you want if you you can you can actually can continue to make 
the thought clearer by repeating it. Mm. You can you can you can define the thought more clearly by repeating it to the point where it's it goes from getting like a chuckle, the exact same words to a laugh. And if you believe in it, it can if you then it's a good enough joke. It will get an applause break if you deliver it properly. And I think s some comedians think, well, it's just all the delivery. It's all just that guy's crap because the joke's not great, but he delivers it really well. I think that's an incredible talent. <laughs> and yeah. or, or no, no, wait. It's an incredible skill. Yeah. You no, know, it's not the same thing, talent and skill. But it is. But some people have it naturally. Yeah. Know? Talent is a natural existing thing, I think. Yeah, certainly. Well, that's how I see it. With the way that I'll perform, I don't necessarily notice it until I go... You know, if you're running it in in Melbourne and then you go to Sydney or Perth or Edinburgh and you have a different room. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and you realise that you have to find the points in the room where you stand to deliver certain things. Absolutely, that yeah. you That it's slightly disorienting doing a mm. show in a room you don't know. Yeah. Because the room is part of the performance. Yeah. The space that you're in is part of the performance. The way the audience is Absolutely. distributed is part of the performance. Absolutely. And you get used to some things changing, like you get used to balancing against your own moods yeah. and then the vibe of the audience changes night to night or moment to moment. And yeah. those are the two variables that you're used to factoring in. And then all of a sudden it's in a new space and there's a third variable and it can be quite mm. like genuinely dizzy making. It's the, it's the thing I'm f uh, facing touring. I uh, haven't done a tour in 10 years and I am in a different room. And most of the art centers are very nice and everyone's so welcoming and it's, and they are set up like little theaters and they're set up for that to make you, and, mo and if it's a black box with a rows of people in front of you, it makes it easier. But then you suddenly you're in a room, you know, I was in the Bath Comedia suddenly, which is like a really high stage and people at tables and a, a work's due and, and it's a Friday night. So it's more like a comedy club than a, and I'm doing this theater, pe what I want to do, my show, you know, <laughs> what, I intend to do, what I intend to do for them, which I have been doing in these lovely spaces. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, right, I have to use all my skills I've gathered over all the years and all the experience I've had not to fuck this up because it could have very easily gone south because that's not what they didn't, they didn't care. They didn't ca really care. My brother's in a coma, yeah, and so get on with it. What's, make it funny, you know, and it's hard. And it's really hard. And because of the big space, it suddenly I felt really like I was a, an alien in a, in, a, in a really strange place. Mm. So that's why I love doing festivals, because you're in one place for a long time. So at, in Edinburgh, I play at the Monkey Barrow, which is like a beautiful comedy room. Yeah. Set up as a comedy room all year round. 110 seats, everyone in rows. You know, people have bought tickets with my name and the title of the show on the ticket. So even if they don't know me or what the show is going to be about, they've still invested in it. Mm. And uh, those are my favorite places to play. Mm. At the same time, you know, performers don't always have a choice. <laughs> so you got to make it work. You do. Yeah. So where can people find you online? Where can people? I'm on uh, philnickel.com. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm on um, Twitter at philnickel. Mm -hmm. I'm on Instagram, Philbo2000, as in Bilbo, but Philbo2000. That's and very cute. Thank you so much. It's very Aussie, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Philbo, mate. What <laughs> Philbo? And uh, um, and uh, and I'm on I'm on Facebook at Phil Nickel. Um, I have my own page for friends, but I've got Phil Nickel, and I've just started a new material night on Tuesdays uh, at the Tap Room in Opera Street, and it's called. 
the delivery room. And I'll be there this Tuesday. You will be there this Tuesday. Fantastic. So. Um, it's really great in a little tiny room. But I'm on tour till uh, December 1st. I'm doing shows at Soho Theatre. November 27th to December 1st, if you're in London. Uh, but I've also got on my website, you'll see I'm playing, I think I'm doing 30 plus dates in 60 days. So if I'm playing near you, yeah, please come and see the show. Look him it's up on philnickel.com. He's very funny. He's well worth seeing. Thank you so much for having tea with me. Thank you. Love.